Session two of Ingersoll on Robert Burns from the works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume three, Lectures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This section is read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Section 2. His Biography and Why Do Millions Love Him? On the 25th of January, 1759, Robert Burns was born. William Burns, a gardener, his father, Agnes Brown, his mother. He was born near the little town of Ayr, in a little cottage made of mud and thatched with straw. From the first, poverty was his portion, poverty the half-sister of death. The father struggled as best he could, but at last, overcome more by misfortunes than by disease, he died in 1784 at the age of 63. Robert attended school at Alloway Mill and had been taught a little by John Murdoch and some by his father. That was his education, with this exception— that whenever nature produces a genius, the old mother holds him close to her heart and whispers secrets to his ears that others do not know. He had spent most of his time working on a farm, raising very poor crops, getting deeper and deeper into debt, until finally the death of his father left him to struggle as best he might for himself. In the year 1759, Scotland was emerging from the darkness and gloom of Calvinism. The attention of the people had been drawn from the other world, or rather from the other worlds, to the affairs of this. The commercial spirit, the interests of trade, were winning men from the discussion of predestination and the sacred decrees of God. Mechanics and manufacturers were undermining theology. The influence of the clergy was gradually diminishing, and the beggarly elements of this life were beginning to attract the attention of the Scotch. The people at that time were mostly poor. They had made but little progress in art and science. They had been engaged for many years fighting for their political or theological rights or to destroy the rights of others. They had great energy, great natural sense, and courage without limit, and it may be well enough to add that they were as obstinate as brave. Several countries have had a metaphysical peasantry. It is true of parts of Switzerland about the time of Calvin. In Holland, after the people had suffered all the cruelties that Spain could inflict, they began to discuss as to foreordination and free will, and upon these questions destroyed each other. The same is true of New England, and peculiarly true of Scotland, a metaphysical peasantry, men who lived in mud houses, thatched with straw, and discussed the motives of God and the means by which the infinite being was to accomplish his ends. For many years the Scotch had been ruled by the clergy. The power of the Scotch preacher was unlimited. It so happened that the religion of Scotland became synonymous with patriotism, and those who were fighting Scotland were also fighting her religion. This drew priest and people together, and the priest naturally took advantage of the situation. 
they not only determined upon the policy to be pursued by the people but they went into every detail of life and in this world there has never been established a more odious tyranny or a more odious form of government than that of the scotch kirk a few men had made themselves famous david hume adam smith dr hugh blair he of the grave beatty and ramsay reed and robertson but the great body of the people were orthodox to the last drop of their blood nothing seemed to please them like attending church like hearing sermons before communion sabbath they frequently met on friday having two or three sermons on that day three or four on saturday more if possible on sunday and wound up with a kind of gospel spree on monday they loved it i think it was heinrich heine who said it is not true it is not true that the damned in hell are compelled to hear all the sermons preached on earth he says this is not true that shows that there is some mercy even in hell they were infinitely interested in these questions and yet the people were social fond of games of outdoor sports full of song and story and no folks ever passed the cup with a happier smile sometimes i have thought that they were saved from the gloom of calvinism by the use of intoxicating liquors it may be that john barleycorn redeemed the scotch and saved them from the divine dyspepsia of the calvinistic creed so too it may be that the puritan was saved by rum and the hollander by schnapps yet in spite of the gloom of the creed in spite of the climate of mists and fogs and the maniac winters the songs of scotland are the sweetest and the tenderest in all the world robert burns was a peasant a ploughman a poet why is it that millions and millions of men and women love this man he was a scotchman and all the tendrils of his heart struck deep in scotland's soil he voiced the ideals of the best and the greatest of his race and blood and yet he is as dear to the citizens of this great republic as to scotia's sons and daughters all great poetry has a national flavor it tastes of the soil no matter how great it is how wide how universal the flavor of locality is never lost burns made common life beautiful he idealized the sunburnt girls who worked in the fields he put honest labor above titled idleness he made a cottage far more poetic than a palace he painted the simple joys and ecstasies and raptures of sincere love he put native sense above the polish of schools we love him because he was independent sturdy self-poised social generous susceptible thrilled by a look by a touch full of pity carrying the sorrows of others in his heart even those of animals hating to see anybody suffer and lamenting the death of everything even of trees and flowers we love him because he was a natural democrat and hated tyranny in every form we love him because he was always on the side of the people feeling the throb of progress burns read but little had but few books 
had but a little of what is called education had only an outline of history a little of philosophy in its highest sense his library consisted of the life of hannibal the history of wallace ray's wisdom of god stackhouse's history of the bible two or three plays of shakespeare ferguson's scottish poems pope's homer shenstone mackenzie's man of feeling and ossian burns was a man of genius he was like a spring something that suggests no labor a spring seems to be a perpetual free gift of nature there is no thought of toil the water comes whispering to the pebbles without effort there is no machinery no pipes no pumps no engines no waterworks nothing that suggests expense or trouble so a natural poet is when compared with the educated with the polished with the industrious burns seems to have done everything without effort his poems wrote themselves he was overflowing with sympathies with suggestions with ideas in every possible direction there is no midnight oil there is nothing of the student no suggestion of their having been rewritten or recast there is in his heart a poetic april and may and all the poetic seeds burst into sudden life in a moment the seed is a plant and the plant is in blossom and the fruit is given to the world he looks at everything from a natural point of view and he writes of the men and women with whom he was acquainted he cares nothing for mythology nothing for the legends of the greeks and romans he draws but little from history everything he uses is within his reach and he knows it from centre to circumference all his figures and comparisons are perfectly natural he does not endeavour to make angels of fine ladies he takes the servant girls with whom he is acquainted the dairymaids that he knows he puts wings upon them and makes the very angels envious and yet this man so natural keeping his cheek so close to the breast of nature strangely enough thought that pope and churchill and shenstone and thompson and littleton and beattie were great poets his first poem was addressed to Nellie Kilpatrick, daughter of the blacksmith. He was in love with Ellison Begbie, offered her his heart, and was refused. She was a servant, working in a family and living on the banks of the Cessnock. Jean Armour, his wife, was the daughter of a tailor, and Highland Mary, a servant, a milkmaid. He did not make women of goddesses, but he made goddesses of women. End of section 2